welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Overwolf. With over 1,500 games supported, 165,000 creators, and 38 million monthly active users, Overwolf is the guild for in-game creators. Whether you're a gamer, creator, or game studio, Overwolf is the ultimate destination for integrating UGC in games. For game studios, Overwolf offers CurseForge for Studios, a white label solution that lets game makers and publishers easily integrate mods safely and seamlessly into their games, both existing and new, at zero cost. It's battle-tested by AAA studios and games, including Maxis with The Sims 4, Studio Wildcard with Ark, Take-Two Interactive, and others. For creators, Overwolf is the all-in-one platform that enables creators to build, distribute, and monetize in-game apps, mods, and game servers. In 2022, Overwolf paid over $160 million to in-game creators, proving that they truly value the talents and contributions of the gaming community. You can check out everything Overwolf has to offer at overwolf.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Novic Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and this is the interview and insight segment. It's our new zeitgeist in games, key words like generative AI, diffusion models, and an enormous imagination about how the onset of this technology might impact game creation. What will be the first killer use case for the 2020 era of AI? Will it be optimizing production, marketing, or a more transformative shift that fundamentally alters what games are versus simply how they are made? So today we're going to have a really fun brainstorming session with two impressive folks. First, I'm super excited to have my friend Kishan Patel on air. Kishan is a recent graduate of Harvard Business School and a games and consumer angel investor. I had the pleasure of meeting him during my time at Bitcraft, um, and he recently wrote a fantastic piece in collaboration with Lightspeed on gaming and the AI market called The Infinite Power of Play. If anyone's looking for the link, it'll be in the show notes below, but I had such a good time reading it, so I knew I had to have him come on and collab on the pod. So welcome, Keishan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Woo! Um, and next, I'm super psyched to have on Joe Sheppy, the CEO and co-founder of Solston. Solston is a company that believes there's limitless power in understanding your player, direct quote from the website. And there's some interesting uses of AI that the company um, is doing and doing today, and we'll explore that during our episode. Um, so welcome to the pod, Joe. I loved hearing um, your episode on Deconstructor of Fun. Shout out to those guys. And so I learned a little bit about from about Solston. Uh, I don't know, you did that episode like a year or two ago, um, something like that, um, from you guys. So I'm really excited to see how the studios evolved and talk about AI. Um, so as mentioned, today's episode is slightly different than some of the others in our interview and insights segment. I'm calling this like more of a brainstorming episode and we're learning at our guests, but we're also talking about something that's rather unknown. So before we deep dive into the session with the use cases and the market of AI, I just introduced you guys pretty loosely, but could you guys tell me about yourselves and what you're up to now? And also your favorite sci-fi like episode of a TV or movie or book that deals with AI? Um, Keishan, you go first. Sure, sure. So, so yeah, like like you mentioned at the intro, uh, I'm I'm a consumer and, and gaming focused angel investor and advisor to startups. Um, a lot of my focus lately, obviously, has been on generative AI and AI broadly, kind of how that's going to be impacting you know things like game development, how games are played, um, who plays them. Uh, really, really excited time uh, to kind of be in the space and, and excited to talk about it. Um, favorite favorite movie. So in a past life, I used to be in entertainment. So I have a lot of favorite movies that kind of touch on this topic. Probably though, I'd say, um, and maybe odd choice is probably Wall-E. Uh, awesome, awesome movie. I think it touches on kind of something that we're going to be talking about today, the kind of uh, human side of AI, a lot of emotions and, and the aspects of AI we don't typically think of. We think of like these hyper-rational, um, almost cold, cold robots ruling our lives. But 
love Wally, kind of a kind of a different take, positive take on AI. So I'd say that. That's not, awesome. Um, yeah, I love the robot angle. Um, it definitely <laughs> contrasts with one of my favorites, which is the Love, Death, and Robots um, episode with with the yeah. vacuum. I don't know if anybody has seen that show, but there's a vacuum that basically has an AI. It's like a Roomba, but it like takes over the world. Uh, so there's a world with benevolent robots and a world with more uh, malicious ones. But uh, Joe, uh, how about you? Uh, sure. So CEO and co-founder at, at Solston. Um, Solston's journey is we're at the, the forefront and edge of understanding what it means to be human. Uh, we, we firmly believe that AI can't function in a human world without unlocking theory of mind, understanding me, understanding you. That's what we do as human beings. And so how do we help uh, technology actually become regenerative for human beings? And what we mean by that is when we're on a podcast, when we're using tech, when we're on our app, how are we walking away from technology so that we actually, it's better for us. It, it helped us in some way, shape or form. Um, biopsychosocial data. So is it improving us biologically? Are we getting better sleep? Psychologically, is it is it reducing anxiety? Is it increasing resilience? Um, socially, are we actually having meaningful connections? And you can't improve something if you don't measure it. So any game company out there that's like, we're going to make a healthier game for players, are one of the first things we say is, well, what does healthy mean to you, and how do you measure that? Oh, okay. So you know, let's let's start with that. So Solson's at the really the forefront of adapting these systems of measurement with actually one of the oldest forms of machine learning, which is adaptive testing. So that is what we've been doing. In the, and everyone forgets that when you took the ACT or the SAT, if you're in the US, that was machine learning. It's it's as you're taking questions. It's Tisha and I out. recently took the GMAT. That thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's, we know, we that's, know all about the yeah, adaptive testing. I don't know. Testing. That was the, my favorite <laughs> thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's ML, and you know, and I'm sure we'll we'll dive into this in this episode, talking about like what is like what do people think generative AI is, and you know, people will use terms like discriminatory AI, and there's like well, what are all these different sort of things, and and I have a very specific opinion on that, which is probably not as popular, but. Um, we'll pause there. So that's sort of sort of Solston and how we help game developers is where I mean, we were rated the um, top AI by developers last year. So we beat out ChatGPT, these different groups um, for actually game development. So we work with our developers for understanding their audience and then being able to create better experiences for those players. Um, so I'll pause there on that part. And then favorite movie that has AI components to it. You made me think on my feet a little bit here, so I'm glad Kishin had to go first there. But <laughs> one of my favorite movies of all time is hands down Prometheus. And I, I have a background in anthropology. I used to be an adventure-based psychotherapist. And what I love about Prometheus, if you actually start to view it through the lens of all the different AI systems that are working there, I love how like, you know, you make a lightsaber and everyone's like, we're gonna go make lightsabers. But Prometheus actually provides a really interesting roadmap for the future of like what I could do or couldn't do and the threats and ethical use cases too of, of what it might become um, and and why maybe it's important for it to understand humanity, which is part of what that, that movie is about of what happens when it doesn't understand us, which is maybe just as much of a risk. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited to ask some of those ethical questions, which I think I've got some of those queued up later. Um, but it is really interesting, like how many movies touch on this topic mm -hmm. and what we can and what we can learn from them. Um, that talking about Prometheus just reminded me of another Black Mirror episode that I was thinking about, where there's like a they this woman like recreates her partner mm. out of like text messages and mm. like video footage um, in an AI, um, and then it's like kind of like this like the as any Black Mirror does, there's like a double edge to this thing that seems immediately good, but mm -hmm. turns out to be kind of poisonous in a way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's and then and this and this thing is so believably human. Um, but you told us a little bit about like what you guys do at Solston, and um, from the episode that I listened to a long time ago at DOF, you guys were talking a lot about understanding player psychologies, optimizing UI UX for, quote, a human-centered experience. Um, I'm wondering how the new AI craze has changed or your original product, if it has at all. Not yet. So, you know, if, if you look at, if you go to developers and you sit down with them and you ask them today, how, how much are you actually implementing this stuff in the day-to-day? -day? Like, talk to someone who works on Call of Duty at Activision, and this is a literal quote-unquote, 
just to get an, an, an art asset from one of our third-party studios into our you know, Activision kind of headquarters central, the amount of work that needs to be done to get that in place, to actually be able to put it in a game and be game ready, um, it, it is profound. So it's not that we can't get there when it comes to ML and, and different like deep learning neural networks. It's just that we're still very infant in terms of actual practical use cases. So when it comes to like how we w- interact with, with developers in terms of um, you know, like uh, mid-journey, for example, some of the areas where we're seeing already improvements is one of the things we do at Solstice is called resonance testing. So when you're building a new game and you have your audience, what we're actually able to do is when you test different themes, art styles, things like that, you're able to look at, does this actually resonate with the market that we're moving towards or not? So one of the cool things about Solstice is a lot of games that are getting developed right now, like NFL Rivals is one that just came out recently that use, use Solstice it's top in the mobile side of things in terms of the game store. They came to us and go, can we get an audience of people that are into NFL, into crypto, and then all the testing and iterating they do, they can actually see how it's resonating against their audience. So in that case, we have clients using things like MidJourney, for example, to say, hey, can I get these five different art styles in these different look and feels based off of something that someone originally created? And then we can resonance test those. And that's part of our, our resonance testing. We have a part of that's ML because we're learning across all the different um, creators we work with. So I do, we do see things in terms of the creative process, but in terms of like actual games, um, it's it's really limited to two things. Which this is what we say Solstice's limited to with our we call it our traits product. That's our product that works with live audiences. We say it's limited to your tech stack and your imagination. So take for example game companies like Rovio. Um, Rovio had ML generative levels from way before ML was popular to talk about for Angry Birds. There's nothing new that's there. You plug Solston into something like that, really interesting things that can happen. However, there's very few, because of the history of game development, if you talk to back-end professionals, they'll tell you every single game company is going to look pretty different um, at the end of the day. And so game developers are developers. So there's not really the systems in place yet to implement generative, um, quote unquote, uh, it's not really generative, it's more synthetic, but that's a side. But doing that at scale right now, we're not there yet. I think we'll start to move in that direction in maybe the next three to five years. But so far, in terms of how we work, we're here to provide that human side. So if you want to plug that in to Solston, we're ready for that. Um, but in terms of the the top game companies out there, it's just, I think most people are trying to fight through um, still uh, Apple's changes and some of the stuff that has happened there on marketing and how the gaming industry levels out and gets into this new new phase. And that's where I, maybe it's a good tr- transition. I really agree with the piece that, you know, you guys wrote and um, what, what Keishan and what you guys are talking about with the, the stuff that we're doing today, um, the next three to five years, it's, there's going to be not step shifts. There's going to, there's going to be a couple monumental shifts that, that happen. And I think that's going to be really interesting. Got it. And yeah, and, and you use this word, um, we've talked about resonance, the, the testing, but you use this word um, uh, generative and then you use synthetic and maybe Keishan, I'll pawn this one off to you since, you, since you're the expert, but like, um, what are the different techniques that you got, that you use? You know, I've heard diffusion, I've heard GAN, I've heard now synthetic. Um, maybe like walk through maybe well, how that's a little bit like technically different and what can be accomplished using either different types of models. Um, from my understanding, I thought MidJourney was a diffusion-based model, if that's correct. Um, but Keishan, why don't you take that away? Yeah, yeah. There's, I think the diffusion, there's a kind of diffusion-based models. Uh, like you said, there's GAN models. I think like the, the generally the idea is kind of before the way kind of games are made, maybe in um, kind of the typical procedural generation that we've seen before in like roguelike games, um, any kind of map-based games, uh, you can kind of make levels, make kind of maps that kind of generate based on certain rule sets. Uh, I think here, you know, now in this kind of new world uh, and, and kind of to Joe's point, kind of the step change that we're excited about and, and seeing is uh, kind of this personalized aspect of that procedural generation. So creating um, creating levels or whatever that are personalized to the user and then kind of expanding to uh, categories that up until now you really couldn't do procedurally. So you've seen a lot of narrative-based games. Um, you've seen kind of uh, Latitude has their AI dungeon. Um, Storycraft is doing kind of a narrative game, Hidden Door. So a lot of those are kind of marrying both 
the procedurally generated levels with kind of language models to kind of create a really new kind of experience for, for players. Um, but yeah, I think like the, the, the most interesting thing for, for me has been, you know, you can kind of create new maps and, and kind of keep the game fresh, but it, the game is even more fresh when it's personalized to the player and, and to getting to kind of some of the stuff Joe has been focusing on. How do you match that to someone's psychology um, and kind of what they're looking for out of the game? So maybe like mitigating some of like the, like what we call like procedural, like oatmeal, where like mathematically the map is different, but to the player, it feels exactly. the same, um, which is really interesting. And so you're saying that like this new era of AI, like levels up procedural generation. Cause I think oftentimes that's been a question that I even have. I'm like, well, we've kind of already been generating maps this way for a bit. Um, is this just making it faster or better? Um, so that's a really helpful um, explanation. And so actually, this might be a good time to talk about like that number one use case that a lot of people are talking about, which is kind of cost and, and time reduction. So your piece, um, and, we'll, and we'll talk about it, claims a couple of things. The first is that AI is, quote, the fourth industrial revolution of video games. And in this part, you talk about the evolution from the publisher model, which you call the Stone Age, thanks, um, (laughs) (laughs) to modularization, which to be honest, from the word itself, I had no idea what that meant. But I think you basically make a claim that technology, so like gaming engines and backend resources, shorten game development cycles. To third, UGC player creation. And then finally, AI, the dawn of the AI-powered studio. And then your second point is about AI-powered games. So basically, AI mm-hmm. falling into two categories of use. One, do something faster, cheaper, smarter, which is basically faster and cheaper. And two, do something new. Um, so let's talk about number one first. Um, and you have this great, efficient frontier graphics. So again, <laughs> like for those who haven't seen the article, we linked to the show notes. And as MBAs, we all love a nice frontier graph. Um, two by twos, graphs, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's my language. <laughs> um, and you start putting forth some ideas for what an AI powered studio actually means and joe can obviously complement this with what he's building at solston but one it was innovation in art and asset creation two it was tools to design game environments three it was tools and developer and modding um and four it was tools and quality assurance and testing and the overall thesis is time reduction um exactly and so i want to kind of get a sense of what's actually going down um and maybe Joe, uh, what's your take on this? Like, who are actually using a lot of these tools, and what has have have there been like significantly successful integrations with these so far? Are we still like, are we still very much at the ideation phase where none of this is like actually making a daily production impact? Um, maybe the resonance is actually happening right now, but what about some of the other stuff? Yeah, yeah, totally. So I'll kind of step back a little bit and, and you kind of touched on some of uh, the, the broader trends that we were kind of pointed out and how AI kind of jumps onto those trends. Um, you know, you had the in, in the monolith code bases that that big publishers use and, and still use today. Uh, and, and the biggest example of kind of modularization kind of happening is, you know, the game engine, right? So like, Publishers used to build their own and still do build their own engines. And then, you know, first with id software, but then, you know, most famously with Unity, you have people kind of taking that part of the stack out. And then it gives kind of um, game developers, game designers more time to just focus on the actual gameplay. They're not spending so much time, you know, recreating the physics wherever else it is. Um, and then on top of that, so if you think of that as kind of um, closer to, to just the development side, um, you have UGC where where you have more personalization. So just broadly, even outside of gaming, the idea of UGC is anyone can kind of make something. And, and by doing that, they're able to find an audience for it. However small or large it might be, you're able to kind of expand, you know, the, the, the pool of people that might be interested in the, the, the piece of content, object, um, you know, even the whole game, if you're talking about something like Roblox that you're creating. Um, and I think the way we thought about how AI fit into this was, you know, you have... Uh, uh, the more and more games kind of getting created and it creates this ability for, um, you know, third-party software to plug in. So you, you, I'm sure a lot of folks maybe have seen, um, you know, 3D object creation kind of companies where they can speed up that development process. So just the idea of bringing more people to make games means that you can have companies that just the same way that um, engines took a piece of that, you know, difficult process out. Um, you're able to have these kind of third-party companies come in and help you do that, you know, faster and more efficiently. And then also AI, you know, is, is increasing the personalization in games. We're seeing, you know, people are able to create objects, not just if you're a, if you're a you know, high quality designer, um, you can, you know, eventually we think consumers can be able to kind of make their own objects, use them in games the same way, you know, people have been doing for years now with modding, but just making that barrier a lot lower. 
Um, and in terms of kind of where, where we are today, I think you're right. We're still in very much in the ideation stage. Um, there are people trying to figure out ways to use um, some of this technology. I think the tough thing is matching the costs. Um, you know, if you think about AI models, you have um, you know, training. So you train the model to be able to like, you know, create the, the either whether it's text output, image output, you know, objects, whatever it might be. Um, but then you also need like an inference pass, which means like, you know, once I've built the model, I put the text in and then it runs through the model and creates the object I want. That inference pass today is, is still pretty expensive. So people are tr still trying to figure out exactly how to bring that cost down so that you can um, you can use this in production environments so that you can have you know, consumers able to use this um, at a cost that really makes sense. So that's been kind of one of the biggest barriers, I think, in kind of expanding um, kind of the usage of a lot of these tools. But right now, it's just really exciting to see how people are playing with it, testing it out, especially in indie environments, you know, trying to figure out how they can bring them into their workflows. Um, and I think as we see that, I think that the space is kind of kind of continue to grow. Yeah, I think if you actually look at the the day to day, though, we're so far away from yeah. that. So I think the, the advantage Solston has is we're we're a category creator. We are at the frontier of ML and deep learning when it comes to human understanding. And when it comes to actually like how we're implementing these different systems to do environment generation, level generation, uh, these sort of things. So we have the advantage of um, Danny Lang, uh, who was the, the VP of, of ML at Unity early on. Uh, Lloyd West was an individual who came to our team who he, he founded the Game Tune team at Unity. And one of their tasks was that, like, we're talking 2017, 18, how do we allow developers to have these sort of more adaptive environments? And there are some use cases with games where they made stuff. But I remember Lloyd coming to me and saying, I don't, I'm a, I'm a PhD mathematician from Cambridge. He goes, I don't think you can do this without psychology. And I'm like, that's correct. And so there's a huge overestimation that's happening right now in the ability for technology to generate things that are relevant. Um, and that's the important thing. And that's why we talk about resonance versus relevance. Um, relevance is interesting. It's like, did I notice it? Is it relevant? But that doesn't mean people are going to engage with it for a long period of time. And one of the things, if you talk to uh, you know, a well-seasoned game designer, you know, they're going to say, I find the fun. Well, how do you find the fun? And then they have trouble articulating that. Um, and a lot of that has to do with like theory of mind and hot cognition versus cold cognition. And, and AI is a cold cognition process. It's, it's very long, robust. There's not an emotional part to it. But why is this so important? And I'll, and I'll go back to that. So if you think of like, let's talk about ML systems we've been training for a while, like self-driving cars. Well, on the cold cognition perspective, we can get motion capture, video capture. We can understand when a self-driving car should possibly stop based on all previous data. And this is what I mean by AI is not generative. It's, it's synthetic. We synthesize all this previous data. We bring that data together, and then we run a prediction on what that car should do. Well, human beings, we are not um, just cold cognition beings. We have hot cognition. We have emotions. You know, when people say uh, behavioral economics is is great and that people are predictably irrational. False. People are rational when you include cognition. So when you include, hey, there's a kid running across the street for some random reason. Why? Well, an ice cream person, you know, is on the other side. And now the car doesn't know to stop because it didn't have that training use case historically. Well, now maybe it can start to learn to identify ice cream trucks. But in the future, maybe there's different deliveries of ice cream trucks and they look different. And, you know, there's this, this Taco Bell that serves things, you know, out of, you know, shoots and things like that. But we have new ways of deploying information, technologies, et cetera. And that's one of the problems with, with kind of this process. So I think we like to think of it in a couple different buckets. There's, there's the creative enablement aspect, which I think is really cool, is people that get good at a lot of these tools can come up with more inspirational facets quicker. So that's, if I see what is actually being done today, that is improving the, the game, sort of the game development like cycle. One, it's, you know, what we do at Solston, it's we're able to use ML to better understand audiences than anyone before. So now as a game developer, I know who I'm making this for, and it's not just 45-year-old women or 27-year-old men, you know, Nielsen-type data. Two, if I look at where it's being applied and succeeding is with marketing at the moment. It's let's go and generate a bunch of creatives or a bunch of text. And then from there, they'll plug into their Solston data and say, ooh, like our audience is really high on, um, on caring as a value. And they're really high on family. We got all these ideas. Hey, um, can you generate a bunch of images or text 
surrounded on the value around caring and family. That all of a sudden, what it does is enable an artist, like we've had companies go to us like, you know, I, I had a handgun, now I have a machine gun, or I have a little box of crayons, now I have the full box of crayons, and I actually know which colors to paint with. So I think that accelerates a lot of that. But then when it comes to implementation, like Solston doesn't work with SDKs. Why? When I was at Big Fish Games heading up UX there, if we had third parties come to us and say, we have an SDK, we're like, oh my gosh, this is going to slow down our game. This is going to do all these things. So I actually think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the engine end to really optimize how we actually sit down with game developers. And, and you know, yes, Unity helped with that, but Game developers are going to game develop. There's going to want to customize things on the back end. And there's some really interesting products that like we're, we're partnered with Excelbyte, for example. Um, we're looking to other groups like that where we can deploy things through the back end. But I think there's, there's going to be a nice play back and forth where we're going to need to be able to actually get to infrastructure level before the, the generative stuff gets massed. So we're not ready from an infrastructure perspective yet to support, I think, a lot of these cool companies that are getting started. Mm. And this speaks yeah. to the cost point, right? Where it's like, okay, this isn't actually cheaper. We're talking about how it's going to be, but as a matter of fact, it might be slower or and way more expensive, right? Yeah, and you know, and humans are great at like like we have a um an agency that works with a lot of game companies and he does their marketing creative. And he's like, the first thing I do when I build out creative is I ask if they have Solston. And he's like, what that does for me is it bypasses all of the A B testing that I know I'm gonna have to do because then I can just see oh, here's our main audience and here's their motivations and here's their personality and here's their cognition. Here's all these things that I know about them now. And I can just start creating off of that. I think where things are going to, like the the groups that take off the the fastest are the ones that are going to be able to play within the bounds that exist. Like that's one of the things that Solston cracked that other companies didn't. Like I had one of the um, founders of, of PlayFab. He's like, how are you working with the companies you're working with? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, we were never able to integrate to the depth that you guys have in terms of just passing data back and forth. And that was one of the things we did. We recognize where they're at. We're like, we're not going to give you some SDK. We'll just play with our REST API. We'll make it super simple for you. So I think it's like meeting a lot of development teams where they're at today. And the technologies that I think you know are going to help bridge that are going to be huge enablers of the other end. And, and I think that's one of the dichotomies we see within the gaming industry. Like, um, June, great guy. He's a CEO of Excelbyte. We were talking and he's like, we have all the backend engineers. You guys have all the ML engineers and data scientists, but very rarely do they all live in the same place. So for us, that's like a very natural partnership to come together and, and work with each other. And if you look in kind of across different game companies, the same, the same becomes pretty true. Like we've been looking for the top people that have worked in ML and data science in the gaming industry for the past five years and that we gotta we gotta catch up when it comes to like universities and education programs and and training for this kind of stuff because it's almost like a passed on wisdom body of of knowledge thing at this point where it's like ML is not just like plugging into Chat GPT and saying you have an ML company like that's not really what that that is. Yeah, what is it like the ML over like the M, the Chat GPT overlay or whatever it is like? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, um, okay. So you were talking a lot about, um, this, the ice cream truck concept, right? Where the kid runs across the street and the car doesn't know to stop because it didn't know that didn't have the cognition to know that the ice cream truck was there. And that's what, and and the the kid might be wanting to run across the street. Um, and my time that I wasn't taking accounting, uh, I took a class called SimSys, so Symbolic Systems 200, which talked about like how the cognition, like the Chinese room test, um, how babies learn and stuff like that. And it is actually really fascinating to like what kind of patterns humans can pick up and then copy, even though there's like no actual like a machine would have such a hard time being able to identify like this apple, this apple, and this apple as an apple um, or fruits or all that kind of binning category and processing. Um, But when it comes to like defining caring, right? Like you mentioned, like, oh, this, I've read this resonance test and now my audience knows that we're into, people are into caring or family or whatever. What are you, how are you building that? Um, And sort of where does that, where is the technology kind of coming from? Because that seems like a pretty hard thing to necessarily like, psychograph about people um so like what about specific images indicate caring or family or anything else right and how are you doing that in a really efficient ai manner versus just having your consumer marketing team be like 
blue sky looks pretty like stuff like that. Exactly. Um, so, you know, one of the things I brought up early on is that Solston is at the edge. We're at the frontier of human understanding. So I think part of explaining this is also understanding where are we at just structurally when it comes to human understanding. So in a former life, I was a psychotherapist. I did a lot of neuropsych evals and neuropsych assessments. That in the medical world is the forefront of human understanding. What does that look like in 2023? Well, maybe you're like, hey, I might have ADHD or you know what? Um, I'm a pilot. Pilots have to do neuropsych evals every two years. Um, I need to get my neuropsych eval done. Well, I'm going to sit down probably for about seven hours. Um, I'm going to go through a series of, of questions. Um, these questions are, are psychometric items that have been developed to measure certain things. So there's things called like construct validity, which means am I measuring what I intend to measure? And there's ways to verify that reliability. If I ask you the question today or in a year from now, will you answer the same or not? So, you know, we need to have that level of consistency and we're standing on the the shoulders of giants in the sense that, you know, if you take, for example, the MMPI, that's probably one of the most popular ones that a psychologist would give you. It's like around 500 questions. And we can understand things like depression, anxiety, some personality things about you. Um, these, these assessments were broadly built for um, Western populations, US populations. And so the item, the question that is the best one for measuring, let's say, um, from a personality perspective, perspective, your level of extroversion. That question that is the most accurate and valid for you might, uh, Alexandra, might be a little bit different than the one for uh, Keshen. And so you're asked several of these questions, and then from that, uh, a trait is deduced. And traits are interesting because if you look at your personality, uh, about 40% of it, from what we know, you can thank mom and dad for, just like we can thank them for our noses and all these other phenotypical traits. The other 60% of us, we get to choose how we express those things. So there is that nature versus nurture piece. Well, we don't know a lot of this right now. So in terms of how Solston deploys this, what we do is we have an adaptive psychometric assessment with a huge library of valid psychometric items. And we're measuring over 300 different traits. So you can kind of think of it as like if you're a bartender and you're making cocktails, you might have base ingredients. Like I got whiskey, I got gin. I know those are my base ingredients. But then there's some garnishes, there's some liqueurs. Well, what we're able to do through adaptive testing, and I brought up ACT, SAT. So David Weiss came from the University of Minnesota. He's the godfather of computerized adaptive testing. He, he built it. He, he created it. So the system is, oh, that's part of why we're in Minneapolis. I know we asked about where we are, but really it came from this part of the world, adaptive, adaptive testing did. So what we're able to do is learn about you as you're answering the questions at Solston. So in live games, we deploy an adaptive assessment that has had the cool fortune of learning for the past three. We had the, we implemented, I think first about three years ago. So before that we were based off clinical assessments now we're based, we have our own adaptive assistant assessment that's constantly learning. And because we get to work with games, it's been learning across almost every single culture, country, and language you can imagine. So there will be a future where that adaptive assessment could literally maybe provide you one question if you're multilingual in one language. And then the next question would be in a different language if it knew those things about you. So we get this sample from what we know is really good foundational science in terms of measuring all these different traits. Those are anonymously, so we never collect personal identity. That's one of the advantages of working with Solston, especially from a legal perspective. You're able to separate sensitive data, which is psychological data, from personally identifiable data. So it, it de-risks your company as well. So now that we have an encrypted version of the user ID, we have a psychological profile attached to that based on pop-up in the game, hey, we want to improve your player, player experience. What's cool is the assessment also updates itself based on engagement. And so it's it's wild in terms of we'll get 10% of DAUs basically take this within the first day. So massive, like Sol Solson by far is the largest psychological database in the world. Like all the alien talk that's going on in governments. Uh, if an alien came to earth and was like, I want to know who human beings are, we could tell you. Like we got a big enough sample for it. It's bigger than a university. So, and that's why we're able to attract a lot of these people who are curious about this too. Um, but so that being said, those people end up getting captured. And then what we're, all, we're now in an environment. So let's say, well, I use NFL rivals as an example. So the next thing we do is we take the play behavior in the game from all the people that did not take the questionnaire. 
Um, cause now we're only representative of, you know, maybe 10% of the population, which you can extrapolate is, is representative at like a 99% accuracy of your most engaged audience. Engaged people don't take questionnaires. So you have a representation of your engaged players, but now what about all the people that didn't take the questionnaire? So what we do is we, we structure that data on the back end. We kind of do two things. Um, if you want to read our patent library, you can kind of learn about what we do. Cause we have patents on all these things. So like we have like the literal Harry, Pot, Harry Potter hat patent. So we're able to identify broad systems of behavior and say, we already knew that there was a group of really courageous people that were altruistic. Hey, based on these broad systems of behavior, hey, it looks like you're one of them. So you're in Hufflepuff or you're in you know, Gryffindor. These are not pre-established. They're, they're, they generate based off of the game that we're in. So that's kind of first step is kind of sorting everyone in a game into their house. But then the second step that we're learning, and this is like the wild frontier, the wild, wild west of what it means to be human. Um, what we do is we understand play data and we take that and start to predict psychological traits from play. And one of the reasons why Facebook doesn't really actually know anything about you, much like credit card companies, they know what you bought. They know maybe your interests, but your interests change. Your purchase behavior changes. Um, when I'm in Berlin, uh, I think I said this to Keshen in our last conversation, like, I'll go eat a kebab. Kebabs are amazing in Berlin. Like I'm in Minneapolis. That behavior is never going to exist for me in Minneapolis in the near <laughs> in the near future. Like, you know, I, I just I just don't see that happening. Like maybe in, we have great Somalian food and Ethiopian food in Minneapolis. Could go for some of that. But so very 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 different thing. Behaviors change. But what is cool about play? So I specifically and I'll stop here. And I've been talking for a bit. I was an adventure based psychotherapist, and there's this beautiful saying that I love, which is "Show me how you play." And I'll tell you who you are. When we play, it's play is fundamental to what it means to be human. I know, uh, Keshin, this was literally in your piece, some of these aspects. It's fundamental to who we are. It's how we learn. And it's where we express our most authentic versions of self. So then Solston uses this play behavior to predict traits. And in the same way that Google indexed the internet and made it searchable, Solston's using gameplay. Um, and we're building the cognitive layer of the internet by using this, this beautiful training environment, which is play. I, I kind of want to just jump in. I think one of the one of the things that gets me really excited about kind of what Joe's talking about um, relates to just how how I you know AI like you know I mentioned kind of the personalization aspects, being able to um, create games that are specific to players. And I know a lot of um, kind of listeners might be familiar with like Bartle types. You have like you know ways of people approaching games, what they're looking for in a game, and I think like adjusting you know, and, and being able to shape what a game is to the, what per person is trying to get out of the game is really exciting to me. So, you know, like trying to be able to, to build games that like, if you're, let's say an achiever, you, the game is kind of catered to you trying to do that. Uh, if you're, you know, a socializer, you really want to meet a lot of people and do a certain, you know, have a certain way of interacting with the game, trying to do that. And I think like, you know, from the game is games as an industry, that's obviously great because, you know, the number, your player base is just gonna be so much larger for the same game. Um, but just in terms of like like people being able to play games and get what they want out of them, kind of to what Joe was touching on earlier is is really exciting to me. If I add one more thing on that, because one of the big misunderstandings when we when we started working with game companies is because people were used to Bartle types. Oh, these are socializers. Mm-hmm. These are killers. These are or, you know, some of the early research that was done was all behavior based. So right. one of the things that was problematic is we were saying we have psychographics on our customers. And then they would tell us, I'm like, well, what are you measuring? What's the psychographics you're measuring? Well, these are completionists and these are not completionists. And I said, well, how are you measuring it? I'm like, oh, you're not measuring it as a personality trait. You're measuring it as a behavior. These people completed things in the game. And then they go, well, these same user IDs are not completing things in this other game. This is an actual Solston case we had, but they're completionists. And I said, no, you measured the behaviors. Let's measure their traits. The traits is the parts of their personality that are enduring. So we measured their traits and we saw that that specific audience, there is nothing from a trait perspective that indicated that they were really into productivity or or completion type psychology. What we saw actually was they were really high on status orientation as a trait. So what we said in the other game was like, if you want them to complete stuff, completion behavior is an off-gas of, co- of cognition. It's an off-gas of our personalities, an off-gas of our emotions. And so if you want them to complete things, give them status for it. Put them on leaderboards. Give them vanity items. Do all this stuff. They come back to us like, that was a little too simple. And I'm like, what do you mean? Well, they're, they're completing stuff again. They're completionists again. I'm like, no, they're not completionists again. You know, you think about like um, AI and training models. 
I went over this actually with Unity. We were talking about this early on. They said, we're training our, our bots off of curiosity. I said, well, that's interesting. You know, what do you mean? So, well, all human beings are, are curious, but we're curious based on who we are. That's the theory of mind that, you know, understanding me, understanding you. And I said, well, some people are curious more about the color blue than about the color green. Some people are more curious about cars and some people are more curious about boats. So if we just train, you know, purely based off curiosity, if humans were purely, purely curious, we'd all be dead. You know, you need things like, like, what is your, you know, perception of risk taking, um, what are, you know, how high are you on openness? People who are higher on openness are more curious about a lot of different things. So all these different parts that, and I think what we don't realize as human beings, a lot of who we are, are 4.5 billion years of pre-installed packages that have served, they're incredibly brilliant. Pre-installed packages. We're not do like, yes, we have mirror neurons. We do work, we do imitation learning, but those mirror neurons, it's not just, we're not a blank slate. And if you watch really young, young children, there's all these cool processes that we run. And one of the things that I love about, I said, Prometheus um, anthropology is you actually look some of the close of our, some of our close ancestors, like chimpanzees, for example, you know, 7 million years ago, we, we, we had a, a descendant that's there. And if you look at some of their behaviors, like when they're out in the field and they do something good, they'll give each other high fives. You can see like, hey, these are, these are part of our lineage for at least 7 million years. These are pre-packaged install things that have meaning. And we can see a chimpanzee give a high five. We don't need a training model to emotionally know what that, what that probably meant. There's, it's, and it's, it happens instantaneous. So you know, there's all this cool stuff that's there in terms of, of that being said. But that whole piece of uh, what is behavior versus what is psychology that's so important in terms of, I think, the next generation of, of how we build experiences. Yeah, and I think that that's definitely, that shifted really heavily from the cost and time reduction category of AI to the what people are really also excited about, which is this new genre of AI-powered game, which could be discerned from by designing play, play, designing games for people with specific psychologies who may or may not express that through their behavior or not, and trying to kind of navigate what kind of um, game you could design for that kind of person. But I think there's another part of the new genre of AI games besides doing psychographic testing on the players themselves, but creating and breathing new life into the games through the form of like NPCs, which I think is another big sector of this AI powered market. Um, and, we, you know, we in world just had their big round um, and their whole thing is to create these inner dialogue NPCs um, that you could just drop into your game and have breathe life into it. Um, and so I just, I have a question that's a little bit, um, maybe like, I, I think I would, it's more from the perspective of understanding, but there are plenty of games with incredibly complex NPC systems, like the Nemesis system in Shadow of Mordor, right? And those are incredibly complicated. Um, the dialogue and story trees in games like Hades are like require like a PhD in math to understand. And so the player experience is amazing. You're like, oh my gosh, this orc remembers that I killed his brother, like, and I did this horrible bad thing. And behind the scenes, there's all this design logic that's running that took years and was incredibly costly to run. So I'm wondering whether or not a company that's creating these NPCs with AI models is actually cutting out the labor or is it actually like a new tectonic genre of game, right? Because I think basically it's just making it, it seems like it's just making it easier to create really complicated and deep NPCs, but complicated and deep NPCs have been in like the Witcher 3 is an incredibly complex like NPC system, right? So I guess maybe like Keisha, like what's your perspective on that about it being like something actually new or is it that, or is that a tooling thing? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. I think, um, you know, what someone once said to me, and I think it's a it's a good way of thinking about this space, is that a lot of the innovation that happens um, in gaming uh, happens already within a lot of game studios. People build games. They've created, like you said, really complex uh, and, and and interesting AI systems, um, and they're not done as a service. So I think the the one like just business model wise that a lot of these companies do, just the same way we talked about, um, you know, engines being built within games and then someone does it kind of as a service, that modular aspect you're talking about before, that's like an innovation there. And being able to do this as a service, um, I know Joe mentioned before, things like latency, being able to do it in a way that they can easily plug in, integrate really well, like those aren't trivial by any means. But then on, te- on a technological basis, like, um, you know, shout out InWorld, love Kylan, uh, Ilya, Michael, great team there. And I think what they're doing and what people in that space are kind of focused on is 
um, you know, you can have the intelligent NPC, the AI NPC that, um, you know, leverages kind of LLMs to be able to kind of interact with people, but it's a combination of, of the LLM, what, what they're actually saying with the emotions, the way that kind of sound comes out, uh, with, you know, facial expressions, like coordinating all of those systems, um, you know, that, that's the complexity. And I think that's where you have a lot of value where, you know, you're right. Someone at a, at another studio kind of building a single game could do that. Um, but that's super time intensive. It's extremely hard. They're a highly, you know, in world, they're a highly technical team that's able to deliver something that, um, kind of as a service, that's really, really high quality out of the box. And so I think that's really, um, that's the big difference is, you know, there are technological leaps, obviously with generative AI, people could build this themselves. And I think what, what companies like in world are doing is making it so that the highest quality can be achieved by anyone from, from the AAA studio to the indie developer, right. and they can create really cool experiences with it. Yeah, I totally forgot about the um, like the voice uh, and the emotion empathy because like yes, you design the whole system, but then you'd be like, all right, voice actors to the studio, like read every line that's possibly possible, and then you then that and localization exactly is a really expensive part. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really interesting. Um, and then I think like the the emotion part is something that I would love to dig a little bit into, and this is like I know that we like, you know, 35 minutes ago, we were talking about ethical questions and stuff like that. And maybe Joe, I'll bounce this to you. But like on the website for Soul City, you make a point about like, well, about well-being, right? About understanding someone's behavior and someone's psychographics and to make sure that they are doing well or they're happy with this game, et cetera. Um, and so like, let's just bear with me for a second. This is like a very hypothetical example, but let's just say like there's like an NPC AI that's like installed in your game that's actually supposed to be there to ensure that your well-being is good, right? And then it somehow figures out that, um, yeah, you maybe you actually actually have a mental health disorder or that you do truly need help based on the way that, okay, maybe not the way that you behave because you just told me there's a big difference between behavior and psychographics, but loosely the based on the way that you behave. Um, and then, uh, you know, on the moral level, I guess, like, let's just say like you're and you're a game company and you kind of find out through your NPCs that this, this player actually needs help or mental support. Like, what do you think should happen next in that context? You know, because we're building these games to tailor that experience for those players, but you know, is it in our right best interest to have an NPC recommend, for example, that you go see somebody? Um, yeah. So I, the, the, the first thing that's important is knowing. So like if you if you zoom out and we let's just talk about the population that is gamers it's 3 billion people globally. We looked at that data and we said what are the traits that show up most frequently when it comes to just flat out who these people are. And I think what's interesting is like the the trait that actually appears most frequently across all games drumroll like kind of kind of interesting. It's actually high achievement. So about 22% of people that play games as a trait are high achievers. Um, what's interesting about people See, who are this, I should just tell this to my mom. See, she didn't believe me. Um, <laughs> <There you go. laughs> like, like my entire, entire life. Like, I would just try to convince the whole world. See, I love no, this. Keep going. No, I like I got, where you're going. I got, I got you, Alexandra. So, <laughs> high, high achievers. Well, what else is interesting about this group of people? Low levels of neuroticism. Statistically low levels of depression. Low levels of anxiety. So we have a very, like, um, actually high levels of physical activity are associated with this group too. So when we look at, right. I think you so, just described Alexander in a, in a sentence. Yeah. High achiever, physical activity, gamer. Boom. So, you know what, this, so this is really interesting. But then when we look at, um, let's talk about the next largest sort of group that, that appears across this kind of like 3 billion group of people. We're talking about 19% of the population. The opposite end of achievement low achievement, high levels of neuroticism, not well adjusted. So gaming is just fascinating. And, and the thing about play, you know, if, if you do something over and over and over again, you want to learn something new, it takes about 400 times for you to develop that, that new synapse, that, that new connection in the brain. When you do it in a state of play, on average, it takes 20 times. That's why as an adventure-based psychotherapist, I could work through stuff with people who have depression much faster than, than I could if I was just sitting in a couch. So, you know, if we look at the responsibility of play, also, we know that passive systems, if you look at the body, all the bodies of research on health and digital use and screen time, passive systems, so TV, social media, things that you passively engage with. Um, if we look at that compared to two-way digital systems, interactive digital systems, um, just flat out people are like, 
Should my kid be playing a first-person shooter game, Joe, or watching TV? First-person shooter game. The data is very, very clear that there's not likely to be violent outcomes related to that. Yes, the kids learn hand-eye coordination. There's a study showing that um, FPS kids outshot police officers in terms of target practice. So yes, it teaches hand-eye coordination, but the violent stuff, there's nothing to support that that I've seen anyway in the research so far. So interactive media tends to be much better than us. So I think what we have is we have this thing where high achievers go to gaming because like this is a way for me to improve different aspects of who I am and my career and what I'm trying to achieve. And then people who are on the other uh, end of the spectrum go to gaming because they're looking for a way out. Like I used to work with a lot of uh, patients who were suicidal and it's a really scary thing. Like my very first patient that I ever had came to me and within the first minute, this is when I'm in like my practicum. I'm very early on. I have a supervisor, but it's me and this person alone in a room. And they said, I want to kill myself. And that's like your, your biggest as a student, you know, and, and being in grad school, that's your biggest like, oh man, like what do I, but you're trained, you know what to do. Um, there's training there. You know, what's your plan? You kind of go through all those things. You understand that. I had multiple therapy sessions with this kid. And one of the cool, I remember he came two years later and I, I didn't even recognize him because he looked so good. Um, he's like, you say my life, can I, can I give you a hug? And I, I went and reflected on that journey. It's part of Solston's journey. And I'll address the question now here too. One of the questions I'd ask these people when we're going through this process, when was the last time you felt joy? And I'd say about a good 50, 60% of them would tell me about a video game they were playing. And, and with him, he's like, you know, it's Ocarina of Time. I was playing this game and it's just so awesome. And I said, well, here's the process. You know, we're going to have to admit you to the hospital. That's going to happen. We need to make sure you're safe. We're going to go through that. But then after that, I want to talk about that more. I want to, I want to get back to you experience that. We'll work through the, the medical aspects of this, but let's start there. And so play is, you know, I think play, humans have a responsibility to play. It's not that play has a responsibility to us. If you look at um, brain data in terms of um, crystal memory versus fluid memory, and if you look at adults, a lot of adults, um, crystal memory goes up past 30 and fluid memory goes down. Well, when we look at studies of people that still play games post 30 years old, their fluid memory keeps going up. It's so cool to see. So I think, you know, when we look at play and the power of play and what play means, it's, it's how can we play? And what's so cool about games is games are the easiest access to play. It's just, we can open them up, pick them up. So when we talk about games, if you just turn the other, 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 you know, you look the other way and you go, well, we don't want to know about depression. We don't want to know about anxiety. Okay, well then, you know, you're not going to be able to nurture your player to optimal outcomes. You're not going to be able to nurture your audience. The game companies that are the first companies to say, let's let's look at that. And Google has policies and procedures for all of this, by the way. If you trigger certain search terms, boom, there's a suicide hotline. Here's what to do. So it's not the first time businesses have actually had to go through if this, then that's for all. And there's best practices for all this. So I think you know, as, as game developers, given the population data, we just laid out and what it's like. I actually think, you know, going that direction, we have casino companies that reach out to us. Hey, we're starting to get regulated for addiction. Can you guys help us measure addiction? We're like, great. We'll do just that. We're not going to help you with creating addiction, but we'll help you with measuring it. Because <laughs> even gambling companies know that if you reduce addiction, you make more money because addictions, people burn out of them and blow out of them. They don't keep engaging over time. You know, you want predictable revenue over time. And so, you know, community, when we think about healthy communities, some of the game companies that said we're focused on mental health and healthy communities have some of the most unhealthy communities. And then if you ask them if they measure it, they'll tell you no, because they don't know how. And that's where Solston can, can be a partner. So I think it's creating that and, and starting to go down that path. And I'm excited for, I think this all plays into AI and NPCs and communication and what's there. Where do flags happen? And it's not the responsibility of the game company to to do anything about it. But I think it's the, the responsibility of, 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 that's a therapist's job. That's a doctor's job. That's not your job. What your job is, just like Google does a pretty good job of, is helping get them to, hey, here's, here's the suicide number. Um, you know, you call this if you need it. It's the first thing that, that shows up for people who are suicidal if they start going down that path in Google. And if, and if you're Googling for a friend and it comes up, like, so what? It's good to know Google thinks about things like this. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I had, I have a little bit of like a can of worms question, but maybe this is a, 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 do you guys, do you think people play when they play as who they really are? 
Or do you think people are playing as someone that they want to be or some sort of other persona? I mean, like, I think I was talking with someone the other day about like using gameplay to like help decide what your credit score should be based on like if you're a good person or not, basically. And I was like, well, I'm not sure. Like I would want someone to go through my League of Legends chat and like figure out (laughs) whether or not I should have a good credit score because like sometimes people behave online in the way that they aren't in the real world. And so I think that's something that makes me slightly nervous about like the idea of like having um, these kinds of like well-being monitors or AI things that like might assess that because that might not be who you truly are, but I would wonder what your take is on that. And again, we're coming up on the the end of the episode probably, but this could probably be an entire other episode by itself. <laughs> yeah. But um, oh. what do you guys think? Maybe Kesha, you should go because I was talking, but we know I have the answer no, to okay. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, maybe I'll go and we'll see if I'm wrong. <laughs> I, I, I personally, I mean, I, I think I'm, I think I'm with you where uh, I, I use, I play games as a way of experimenting, like, like, being different parts of me, maybe not like the whole me. Like I play when I play Civ, I'm I, I will play domination only. I don't do wonder victories <laughs> or anything go. like that. So like, so like the most toxic kind of player. I like to think I'm a nice guy in person. So no, I think um I think we're we're different parts of ourselves. Or we explore different parts of ourselves maybe when we play, but I don't think it's uh our our whole self or or only who we are that that comes across. We should do psychographic tests. What what win condition? Uh, what your win <laughs> yeah. condition in civilization tells yeah, you exactly. about you? Mine is culture. Um, there you go. Okay, <laughs> but I there think in life I'd be more probably more domination. Um, but the it's uh the the culture one is just so nice. You just peacefully off to your own. <laughs> Hopefully, no one bombs you. No. If they do, you're I'm totally raising, screwed. Raising every city, <laughs> raising every city. Give me everything. Yeah. So so what we're so I'll, I got the answer for it. So we'll, we'll jump in from this. So, and this is again, some of the confusion between behavior versus traits. So traits are enduring. They don't change on a day-to-day basis. Um, they're, they're enduring parts of, of who you are. And some of us have more psychological traits than others. And some of, of our traits are more enduring than other people's. Um, and that's a, that's a whole scientific topic we can go down. But the reality is, so in life, we have these things called histrionics. They're all the masks that we wear. And when you're on a podcast, you're socially regulated. Um, if you're a second culture kid, you know how to culturally work through your primary culture versus your secondary culture, as an example. And your personality might change differently based on that. Why games and play are so powerful is it's who we are when no one is looking. And so given that, what we're actually doing, we're measuring traits and then we're learning for one person how you play civilization might not so be Keisha. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, this isn't looking good for me. <laughs> here's, and here's, here's the thing, Keisha. In, in one game, and so we we see this data. For one person, it might have nothing to do with with who you are. You know, it might be not really indicative. But for other people, it very well could be. I think, very, I, think I just outed myself. <laughs> the, the, you know, it's you did. Uh, but it's but it's a part it's it's a part of you and the thing about games because games are not you know we know that games are structured play with rules so because it's not an open world environment it also doesn't allow you for the full expression of yourself either so games can bring out who we are within a specific context and that's part of why we measure things across different different systems so the reality is you know show me how you play and tell me who you are like you can get a very very good idea of why is that person super dominant and aggressive in that type of game. I'm sorry, but that's a part of who they are. There's two things when you look at at play um in in therapy. There's been research on um you know like doing doing drunk assessment for example because you get that you get parts of the brain to shut down and you get a more accurate view like my uncle's he's he's an angry drunk when he drinks whiskey. No, your uncle's got anger issues that are repressed societally and when uninhibited, we get to see parts of who he who he is. And so, a humans are poor observers of our own cognition. We're not very good at it. We're poor observers of each other's cognition. Therefore, we need ways to assess who we are. And then if we're talking about machines, interact with machines appropriately um based on that. And so, the answer is you can learn so much about yourself through how you play and play in different environments. 
All right. Well, Keisha, I think you have a lot to think about. Um, <laughs> yeah, my, my therapy appointments going to be great tomorrow. <laughs> um, guys, I absolutely love brainstorming with you, but we're, we're going to call it. Um, thanks for coming on and sharing all of your thoughts on um, the potential uh, use cases for AI and games, that being either on the cost and production side or this new generation of AI powered games that we have yet to see. Um, to our friends in the audience that might be interested in getting in touch with y'all for any reason, how can they reach you? Um, Joe, how about we start with you? Uh, Solsten.io, uh, S-O-L-S-T-E-N. So we have a form on there. Feel free to reach out. Um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn too, if that's if that's interesting. Yep, LinkedIn's great with me. Uh, Twitter too, I'm Keishan.Patel, Keishan like a quiche, like the food. Um, and same with threads if people are still using that. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so on that note, we'll be concluding. Big thank you, Joe and Keishan, for coming on. Thank you to our listeners, and I'll be back in two weeks. Um, feel free to hit me up at alexandra at novic.co if you ever have any questions, comments, or concerns. We'd love to hear your feedback. And with that, we're out. Bye, gang. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.